to be under your authority and under your hand. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we do that, that it powers us to, to, to move and live and breathe as the sons and daughters of God. Change the world that we live in. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can have a seat or stand there awkwardly. I'm good either way. We're trying to get record a thing. David just, Steve, Jason just kicked at it so often just so it messes things up a little bit. Sue, are we good? We're good. I got thumbs up. All right. I've got, man, a lot of instructions today. Okay. There we go. Good morning. No, it's okay, Miss Barb. Man, good deal. Excited. So, um, 1969, that was a couple days ago. January or so, my dad came back from Vietnam. That was his cowboy stage we talked about last week. And uh, he had met my mother before he went, so he came back, and the things moved quickly in those days. He went to my grandfather, who wasn't my grandfather yet, obviously, and uh, Andy. Uh, I called him Paul. I didn't even know his real name until after he had passed away. He was just Paul to me. And uh, for the hand of my mother, who was 16 at the time in marriage, and, and at that time, you know, Andy was like, hey, one last mouth to feed. And so, okay, my dad's name is Hubert. You can have her, Hubert. And so she was always happy about that. Um, my dad moved into a different stage, out of that cowboy stage. I said last week that the cowboy stage of a man's development is when he is learning to rule himself. He may never quite conquer himself, but he will always... That's the first battle that a man has to, to take on, take responsibility for his own actions and his own growth. But then there's another stage that we're talking about today, the stage I call the warrior, and it's where the cowboy moves from that internal focus to learning to work with others, and so uh, to, to lead others, so to speak. And so it broke. It's back. Thanks, Frank. You're all right. I don't care what they say about you, man. I'm just kidding. By the way, that's Hallie Riskus. She's responsible for all the art in this series. So She's also very shy and hates attention, so thank you very, very much. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but anyway, so the cowboy learns self-mastery, but the warrior learns to work with others. So my dad came back, and uh, when, when he came back from Vietnam at the time, Vietnam veterans weren't actually welcomed home, no parades, those kind of things, and dealing with the after effects of being in war. Today we call it PTSD. After World War II, they called it shell shock. After Vietnam, they didn't call it anything. They just hoped it would go away. And so my dad came home, and he did the only thing he knew to do in his broken condition is he worked as hard as he could work, and on weekends he drank as hard as he could drink. And uh, so my mom and dad were together the first five years of their marriage, uh, by the way, they were married in February of 69, and I arrived to brighten the world uh, in December of 1969, so you can do the math. Yeah, I'm, I'm 50, half a century, man. So, <clears throat> uh, But I will tell you this, uh, no matter how old you get, you are still a 19-year-old in your head somewhere. I mean, just every now and then you get reminded that you're not 19, but somewhere deep in there you still feel like, well, sure, I can do that. Anyway, you can't, but that's another story. For about five years, my mom and dad struggled, and then, thank God, uh, he sent some men to our home. One Thursday night, my mom and dad came to faith, and my dad's next stage began, the warrior stage in his life. A man can fight a battle by himself, and we'll have to do that often. 
But a man cannot fight the war by himself. It requires other warriors. So my dad became a part of a church. This is in the 70s now. In the 70s, we went to church a lot. We didn't have any money, and we, had free, we didn't really have free time, but, you know, it's just how it was. And so uh, in church, you had uh, a church week was Sunday school, Sunday worship. Uh, you had lunch and a nap because that's how God ordained it should be on Sunday is that you take a nap. Just kidding. And then there was an afternoon Bible study, and then there was evening service. And uh, then on Wednesday night, you had prayer meeting, which was another sermon and service. And then Thursday night, you had visitation. And then Saturday morning, you had bus ministry visitation. And so that my dad, when he got saved, he was like all in. He was like, whenever the doors are open, I'll be there to open the doors, and I'll stay until they lock them. And so that was my dad's philosophy. And so I remember going out doing door knocking visitation with my dad when I was probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 years of age. We would go out together. They gave my dad a bus. So back then, Jack Hiles had built this incredible bus ministry in Indiana, and so everybody was trying to, to mimic that. And so that church that I grew up in did that. And they, so they gave dad an empty bus and said, fill it up with kids. The bus held 40. I think my dad's record was 80-something kids in <laughs> that bus, man. <laughs> You're like, that's illegal. We didn't care back then. It was the 70s. We didn't have seat belts. We didn't have car seats. You know, we were just... Anyway, it was a great time to be alive, actually. So only the smart ones survived. Just saying. <laughs> I got to get going here. This, I could have a lot of fun with this, but we, I got to get... Uh, there's a lot I want to cover with you guys today. So anyway... So my dad began to fight with warriors in that stage. And he began to fight for souls. And that's actually my dad's passion is soul winning. The Bible says he that wins souls is wise. And my dad took that verse to heart. And he is a soul winner today. He still sends me tracks in the mail just in case I might lose my way. I, he's on top of it, man. I'm not kidding. I'm telling you, every year I get a track from dad. And I'm like, I'm good, dad. He goes, okay, just checking, just checking. <laughs> He leaves them everywhere. But that was his warrior stage. So today we're going to jump into David's life, and I want to show you his warrior stage, and I want to learn from that and grow into um, his thinking. So as Anna alluded to earlier, David's battle with Goliath propelled him into fame. Okay, At this point, he, he's the rock star of Israel now, and he gets noticed by King Saul and uh, he ends up working in the palace. He ends up give, given a group of men to go out and fight battles with, and he gets given assignments. And this is the transition from that cowboy shepherd stage of his life into the stage where he's going to learn to lead other warriors. Where before he's been out fighting lions and bears by himself, now he's, he's got to learn to work with other warriors, and there's so many wonderful lessons we're going to learn from that. Now, his story, we're going to join David actually in his wilderness because he, he becomes the rock star. And as we kind of hinted into last week, it Saul, King Saul was pretty quickly jealous of David and trying to find a way to trip him up. He didn't want to kill him himself, although he would change his mind later and want to do that. But in the beginning, he wanted David to die of natural causes, if at all possible. So he had two daughters that he, he wanted to, he was trying to trip David up. So he offered David uh, that he could have one of his daughters to marry if he could meet the dowry. And the dowry was that he had to go kill a bunch, a whole bunch 
of Philistines. Well, David took a pass on the first daughter because he just didn't feel worthy. But the second daughter, her name was Michael. That's how it reads in the English translation. Sounds a little different in the Hebrew, but I'm not going to bore you with that. But she really, she was very enamored with, with David. And so David, he does it. He fulfills the dowry and becomes Saul's son-in-law, the one he didn't want. You know, that ever happened to any of you guys? Here's my son-in-law. <laughs> anyway, so, just kidding. <laughs> Excuse me. So David uh, ends up with Michael. Now, Michael is, I wish we had time to just do a little a sermon just on her because her life is just really a, a tragedy because she Love pulled her into this relationship with David. She loved him so much she gave up. She gave David up. She, she laid down her life, so to speak, risked her life so that he could escape because Saul did decide to kill him one night. And so she helps him escape. But then he's gone and she's abandoned. And, and even though I'm using David to describe and show you what masculinity should look like from a biblical perspective in the series, I just want to make one thing clear. David was not a good husband and father yet. He would not be a good husband and father until much later in his life. And when we get to the sage message in this series where we talk about the sage's life, we'll talk about how David had changed and learned. But he was a mess as a dad. And one of the things, and as a husband, and one of the things he failed Michael in is he, he never came back to get her. He, he basically abandoned her. So, but that's, that's not what we're talking about today. We're jumping into where we meet David in his wilderness. So he gets basically run out of town, and he's hiding in the woods. And the Bible tells us this in 1 Samuel 22.1, So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So we're going to join David and learn from his wilderness journey. And so we want to start by talking about David's wilderness. Now, we've said this many times, but let's drive it home one more time. God really seems to love taking his leaders through some kind of wilderness. And so we're, this is David's wilderness. Abraham had a wilderness. He had to leave everything he knew and ended up in the wilderness that would later become the Canaan land and the promised land. Moses had a wilderness. He escaped Egypt, met his, what would become his father-in-law, Jethro, found his wife, uh, took care of sheep in that wilderness for 40 years, uh, the nation of Israel had a wilderness. They come out of Egypt, and now they're out in the wilderness before they come into the promised land. Elijah had a wilderness we talked about several weeks ago. He, got, he was under despair. God took care of him out there and provided for him. What is it with God and wildernesses? Oh, and I should also say that Jesus had a 40-day wilderness fast. What's the deal with wildernesses? Why does God keep taking people into dry, isolated, lonely, barren places as part of their development and growth. And so I, I thought about this. Why the wilderness? So one, I thought, one, there are probably less distractions in the wilderness. You know, you live in a town, towns are busy, they're filled with annoying people. I mean, people, not annoying people, but they're filled with people. There's stuff to do. There's cell reception and Facegram and all that stuff, but you get out in the wilderness, we know this in Wyoming, no cell service, no distractions, no malls, a lot of animals. And so I think God, God takes his son, Israel, Jesus, his sons, Moses, David, into wilderness, into a distraction-free zone, as they like to say at the theater before the movie starts, so that he can get their attention, so that he can speak to them. 
In the wilderness, you have to depend on God. Even Jesus, at the end of his wilderness journey, Satan tempts him to turn stones into loaves of bread to eat, which shows you, and Jesus' answer to that was no. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's a lesson he learned in the wilderness, is that in the wilderness, we learn to depend upon God. The nation of Israel, God provided their water and their bread every morning. They were, God met their needs. Their only place they could get their needs met was from the hand of God. So the wilderness is a distraction-free zone. It's a place where you have to depend upon God. But the, one of the great things about the wilderness is, is that the wilderness always God reveals himself there. Somehow in the wilderness, he has our attention well enough that he can tell us, hey, this is who I am. And often in the Bible, you find God revealing who he is, his names, all kinds of things in the wilderness. A lot of revelation comes out in the wilderness. And, and I don't want you to think wilderness is all fun and games. <laughs> Satan's out there too. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And, and, and so that's instructive to us. I bet every person in this room has a point or several points in their life they might call a wilderness. I've had a few. And one, there was a season in my life I, uh, I didn't know what God wanted to do with me. And I knew I was in a, a spiritual wilderness. It's the only time in my life I ever thought about getting tattooed. And you're going, oh, you should get one, Michael. I'm allergic to pain, actually. It's the idea of someone poking me with needles repeatedly. It sounds too much like being a dad. Not, I've got enough of that going on. So, but I, I, was, I was in this season, and, and this word came to me in that season, and the word was exile. And I felt like I had been exiled out of what I knew, and that God was leading me into what I did not know. And it was a, it was a crazy time. It was a wilderness for me. And so, wildernesses are there, they exist, and we jump into David's life in Gath, and we get in the middle of his wilderness for a second, where he's no longer the rock star, now he's running from his, for his life. Things aren't going well now. You know, they were going well. He was the rock star, plenty of money, plenty of fame, hot wife, everything's looking good. And now, he's hiding out in, out in, in this cave in a doolum, trying to put his life back together. In this wilderness journey, in David's wilderness journey, which would be several years, he would be at war, he would be attacked, he would be betrayed, he would be stolen from. It would be a difficult season. But even in that season of his life, he would call on God regularly, he would wait on God to answer, he would learn to seek God out, even in his wilderness. This was part of David's journey from cowboy shepherd, I just take care of me and I'm tough to warrior. I'm not in this alone. I have a band of brothers. We're in a war and we do this together. And men, that is a journey every man has to take. It, can, it has to at some point stop being all about you and move to a place where it's about us and we. And so, you're probably going to get there through some kind of wilderness. If you're there right now, I share with you David's words in Psalm 63 that I think are awesome. God, you are my God. 
I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there's no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Let me say this about a wilderness. Any wilderness that gives you an encounter with God is a good journey. Any wilderness that gives you an encounter with God is a good journey and worth the wilderness. So if you're there right now, do not lose heart. There is a purpose for being there. So David was in a wilderness. Then David also had a flock. The shepherd boy, God taught David how to be a king by teaching David how to take care of sheep and protect them. And so David was getting a new flock in this wilderness. The Bible tells us this in 1 Samuel 22. Soon his brothers, David's brothers, and his other relatives joined him there. And then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. I'm going to tell you, I learned something huge in this passage, something I had not considered before even though I've read this story several times. And that's this. David's mighty men. Now, when I talk about David's mighty men, I want you to know in Chronicles, there's like this rock star list of these awesome warriors and all they accomplished and their, their mighty battles that they won. And they're called, they're, they're known throughout history as David's mighty men. Well, here's what I learned reading this text, that David's mighty men did not start out mighty. And that's powerful. That's powerful for me. You know, many people want to be leaders. Many people want the stage. They want to stand up before others. They want men to follow them. But not many people are willing to take the troubled, the indebted, and the discontented, the ones who don't know anything yet, and help them become their warriors. They, they want to take on somebody else's warriors and lead them. Well, that's not how it works in the kingdom. And so David, he built his army out of the broken. He had a broken army. And if you look at David's life, you realize he was a broken guy himself. And so that's one thing we learn in the wilderness is that leadership is something that's earned and invested in people, not just something you step into. And so David's flock, they didn't start out mighty. They had stories. They stumbled into David's camp. They were mad. It was not a pretty picture to begin with. In fact, they wanted to kill David several times throughout his story. It, it just... It's, it wasn't as easy as we like to think it is. In fact, I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 37. If you haven't, you need to write that down, make a note, set a reminder in your phone, read Psalm 37. It is a rock-your-world psalm. But I kind of think after reading it in the context of David's mighty men that it might have been his instruction to his army, to these what would end up being 600 men that came to him out in the wilderness. I'll read you just that one verse. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along his path. He will honor you by giving you the land, and you will see the wicked destroyed. Why do you think these broken, troubled, discontented men came to David in the wilderness? I contend, as I did last week, when I told you that it's been said that he who has the most hope has the most influence. And as John Maxwell said, leadership is influence. I contend that the shepherd boy 
who had been anointed to become king and realized that he could never deserve it in his own strength, but that God was still going to give it to him, somehow had the ability to look at these indebted, troubled, discontented men and see in them what they could not see in themselves. I think David had hope for them. I think David looked at them and said, I don't care what your story was. What I care about is what God can do with your story. What I care about is how Papa sees you, how Father God sees you, not about what you've done or where you've been. You want to help broken people become warriors? You as a man, you want to help your sons grow into the men of God that you, your heart dreams for them to be? Have hope for them. I mean, a thousand times you can declare what's wrong and how they've failed. Someone has to speak over their life what their Father God sees for them what they could be, what they could do. Someone has to speak hope. And when we speak hope, that's when we have influence. Wouldn't it be nice if someone would step into politics today who had hope rather than despair? Wouldn't that change the game? It would for me. Maybe not everyone, but it would for me. So David was a man who had hope for his people. That was his flock. I want to jump into now this one other thing I want to show you about David is his integrity before we apply all this stuff. You see, David had an enemy. His enemy was King Saul. King Saul wanted him dead. He was actively working to murder David. And we're about to jump into this story. I'm just going to read you one verse about it. But Saul is in David's wilderness. He invaded David's territory for the express purpose of murdering David. And now that all of Saul and all of his men around him are all out stone cold asleep. And, and they can't, they're not being, it's, the Bible says that sleep came from the Lord even. And so they're just out cold. And David sneaks into the middle of the camp and here he is in this scene. He's standing over Saul. He could kill him at any moment. And his men who are troubled, they don't like Saul anyway. They're discontented. Saul had no hope for them. They're around him going, kill him, kill him, kill him. 1 Samuel 26, 9. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after uh, attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed, but take his spear and that jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. Who lets their enemy go? David did this twice. He had two opportunities to take Saul's life, and both times he wouldn't do it. Do you know why? Because David understood a principle many do not today, and it's simply this. If a man is ever to have authority, he must be under authority. You get pulled over by a police officer today on the way home from church because you were wanting to get to your tuna sandwich too fast. He's not going to pull you over under his authority. You don't care if Joe, police officer, pulls you over. You're not pulling over for a guy named Joe. But you're pulling over for the authority he represents, that police car, that badge he wears. He's under authority, and because he's under authority, he has authority over you. And it works the same way in the kingdom. This is an eternal principle. And many of us as men, we need to realize in an age that declares independence, that tells you you got to pull, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that you're a self-made man, that if you're not under someone's authority, if you're not under God's authority, under Christ's authority, you don't have any authority of your own. 
You guys, you Christians in the room, you know that Christ has all the authority, right? And our authority comes because we're under his authority, not because we have authority in and of ourselves. This is important to understand. David understood that, and he respected the anointing. He respected the fact that God had anointed King Saul to be king, and he wasn't going to end King Saul's reign. That wasn't going to happen by his hand. He knew God had anointed him to be the next king, but how God ended Saul's reign, that was on God. That wasn't David's problem. And so he walked away from this opportunity to end his enemy. Because he respected the anointing. Let me say this about Saul and David that you should understand. And this should be its own sermon and maybe even series. It's this. Saul was a literal metaphor for what I would, in the New Covenant, would call life in the flesh. Everything Saul did was out of human effort. Saul couldn't wait on God. He wouldn't wait on God. He wouldn't do what God said. Everything Saul did, Saul did for Saul and out of Saul's strength. And that is a weak, beggarly kingdom. And that was not good enough for God's people. That's why God found a man after his own heart in David. Did he mean after his own heart that his heart was like God's? Or did he mean after his own heart and that David's was after the heart of God? I don't know. But I know that David was a worshiper. Yeah, he was a killer. He was, he'd slit your throat if you opposed his people, nation, or God. He ended Goliath quickly. But he also worshipped and danced in his undergarments. Underclothes, that's an image you don't want, right? <laughs> in worship, unashamed of what people thought about him, just so they would know that God was the most important thing in his nation. So David represented something else, and I call that integrity. And also, warriors don't kill brothers, no matter what. Warriors don't kill brothers, no matter what. They, they honor Warriors. So, here's what I'd like us to learn. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'd like us to learn from David how to walk out of our own wilderness and into the promised land. So you see, David, <clears throat> excuse me, David learned some things in the wilderness, and I want us to learn them too. The Bible says in Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Those, let me reread that. I misspoke that. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So that's what I want for you. That's the promised land reigning in life, living in victory over sin and over death, living in victory over the weaknesses of the world and bringing the kingdom of God. So how do you get out of whatever wilderness you're in and enter into a life of victory and reign, not just yourself, but the others? So here's what we learn from the wilderness. The first thing you have to learn from the wilderness that you're in is you have to learn to follow your Father God. You have to learn to follow you got to learn to follow Jesus like Jesus followed his Father. Does that make sense? You remember Jesus saying in John, John chapter 5 or so, he said, I don't do anything unless the Father, and I see the Father doing it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me what to say, and he tells me what to say and even how to say it, Jesus said at one point. Jesus came out of his, his wilderness and victory because he followed the Father in, and he was empowered, and he learned to obey the Father there. 
Doesn't matter how you got in your wilderness, by the way. The nation of Israel got in their wilderness because they won a great victory, and it freed them from bondage, and now they were in a transition time from slaves to warriors. And so they ended up in a wilderness because of a victory. Jesus went into the wilderness because the Holy Spirit led him there, drove him there, so to speak, so that he can encounter God. Doesn't matter how you go into the wilderness. What matters is how you come out. What matters is that you come out of your wilderness in the power of God, learning how to lay down your own way. Because that's what Jesus taught us, right? He said you have to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow me. See, that's what Christianity is. Christianity is following Jesus. It's not going to church. You, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, all right? It's actually following Jesus' guidance, leadership, obeying his laws in your life, the, thing, the commands that he gave us. And so it's, it's taking up that cross and going. And so as a warrior, we're learning how to move out of that place of, of defeat into reigning over these things, into living in victory over these things. We're, we're not here to survive. We're here to thrive. We're here, we're here to win. If, you, if, if we could get a hold of this, guys, if we could get a hold of the concept... This idea that Christianity is one failure after another that God's grace just kind of smudges over, that's just stupid. That's not what Jesus taught us. Paul said that Jesus gave us overwhelming victory. We're here to win. Whatever's gut-punching you right now, you're here to smack that thing down. Whatever's got you trapped, you're here to break out of. You're here not just to do it for you, but to show other brothers and sisters in Christ that you can be victorious because Christ is in you. And I realize that in ourselves, we don't have a lot of power. We're not that strong. I get that. But we don't move and live in ourselves. When you have the power of God in you, you use the power of God to break free, not your own power. And so... When we learn to follow and step out into that promise, we get victory and we win. So the first lesson we have to learn in our wilderness is we have to learn how to follow. The second lesson we have to learn is we have to learn how to hope. The Bible says in Philippians 1.20, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even, even better. Paul lived with an expectancy and a hope. I fully expect and hope. Do you know what that means? Do you know what hope is? You don't hope in stuff you have, do you? I hope I get a new car when you're driving a new car. That's stupid. Okay? When you're in a wilderness, just like the nation of Israel, they had a hope that they were going to enter a promised land and they were going to be victorious as they entered. And they did, by the way. Just like Jesus came out of his wilderness in power, so did the nation of Israel. They came out of their wilderness in power. Yeah, it's an illustration to teach us what the Christian life is like, yes. And so, wherever you're at right now, what are your hopes? What do you hope that God will do for you. You see, I've said this before, but I'm, I'm trying to drive it home for me, so I'm going to say it again. If you've heard this before, 
Just know that I'm trying to learn it. That's why I keep repeating it. Being a Christian isn't about being a man or woman of fact. That's what I usually am. I'm walking through life going, well, I feel bad today. That's a piece of information. I don't like the weather. And people are like, well, you live in Wyoming. Get over it. <laughs> Wyoming's like an illustration of what happens when you mix weather and mental illness. I mean, it's just <laughs> bipolar today. I mean, it was raining, snowing. It, you got to love it, man. So we go through our life just like, well, my marriage is tough. I don't like my job. I'm, I'm broke. I'm dying. <clears throat> Thanks, Frank. That's your job. Just stay over there. No, I'm just kidding, man. But that's not faith. Fact isn't faith. Just declaring your circumstances is actually kind of stupid if you think about it. I mean, you're really just saying, well, this is a thing. And that is a thing. And I'm dealing with all of these things in my life. Well, what if we learn to live in hope instead of fact? What if we learn to live in faith instead of fact? What, what if we stopped looking at the problems as problems and just looked at them as circumstantial lies? Circumstantial lies that are trying to keep us from enjoying and living in victory and in power. What if we started to see them like that? What if it made us mad? You know, there's a verse, Psalms 2, it says that God in the heavenly laughs at his enemies. What if we did that to the lies in our life? You got up tomorrow morning in your old crickety, crankety body. That's not words. I just made them up. <laughs> said to you, you feel bad today. And what if you just said back, <laughs> Jesus is in me and Jesus never feels bad. <laughs> What if I laughed at the lie? Look at your bank account. You're broke. Psh, we don't need those kind of facts in our lives. Whatever. Some of you are like, oh, don't tell me that. I'll start writing checks. Uh, well, you wouldn't say checks. I'll just keep spending. Anyway, some of you would say checks. But anyway. What if instead of living in the facts, what if we began to live in the future? What if we started living out of our identity, who we really are? Listen to this verse, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are not like that. You are not like that. You are not the loser. You're not the failure. You're not the doubter. You're not defeated. You are not like that, okay? You are, say are. are. That's present tense, dude. You are, right now, you are a chosen people. You, look at the person next to you, man. God picked that one. Look at, look at yourself. Well, you can't. Get your phone out. Do a selfie. <laughs> Me, chosen, hashtag chosen. <laughs> you, picked by God. God picked you. I don't know why either. I don't know why he picked me. I don't know why he picked you. None of us in the room is worthy of it, but God liked us, adored us, pursued us, and picked us. We're chosen. That's who you are. That's who you are, okay? <clears throat> you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, king priests. That's who you are, king priests. You realize that office did not exist until Jesus Christ, okay? The king priest thing wasn't a thing until Jesus came. 
All right, you are king priests. You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. Hear that phrase. It implies that you are special, that you are adored, that you are protected. You are God's very own possession. And as a result, now all of these things have an impact. This is who you are. This is your identity. And here's the impact. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You see, what if we started hoping? Instead of declaring the facts of our past, I've failed, I've made mistakes, I didn't do it right, messed up with my finances, kids, health, whatever. It's all yesterday. It's all past, and it's all under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's all covered, okay? And we got to stop living with that and start looking to the future. I'm picked. God picked me. God chose me. God made me a, a king priest. God made me a holy nation. God says I'm his very own possession. I begin to move in that, and you know what starts to happen? I start learning these identity truths. I start to have hope again. I start to have hope. I can be more than I think, do more than I think. We can do more than we think. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. I mean, it sounds really good. We're here together. Yes, I'm all these things. Jesus made it happen. Hoorah, it's outstanding. However, hope is risky. You ever had your hope disappointed? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, is what a proverb says. You know, that Americanized mind reads about God's hope and like, all right, 30 seconds from now, I should have that. <laughs> 30 minutes? What, 30, 30 days? Okay, I can wait 30 days. What about 30 years? What if, hear me out, hear me out, what if God's plans and dreams for you are so big that you have to become an entirely different person just to enter into them. Yeah. Yeah. And what if that's what the wilderness is about? What if the wilderness is deconstructing that faithless, fact-filled you and reconstructing a hope-filled, faith-filled you? In the wilderness, we have to learn to have hope and hang on to hope and live expectant of hope. Like Paul, I don't know what I'm going to be, but it's going to be better than what I am. So in the wilderness, we learn to have hope and dare to have hope. And then in the wilderness, we learn another thing. And I'm going to change the outline a little bit that you have if you're following along. So I want to set this up with a story of David. <clears throat> David had some really close, mighty men. And one day, David did to them what I often do to my wife when I sit over in my chair on a Sunday afternoon and I go, oh, I would love some Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> if only God would provide some. <laughs> and my wife, who loves me and has great pity on me, and doesn't want me making the Rice Krispie treats because <laughs> the kitchen will not survive. <laughs> she would do that for me. And so David did that one day. He said, oh, I, need, I wish I could get some water from the well in Bethlehem. And so his warriors, his 
the guys that he had hope in and that ate that hope up, his side-by-side guys, and they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, they went to war for a glass of water. They went to war and broke into a town to get water out of the well to bring back to David. Now, I want to show you something, a passage of Scripture that just had me confused for years, but I think I finally understand what really happened and what was meant. They came back to camp, and they brought this this water to David, that which he had pined for. And when they handed it to him, this is what he said. The Lord forbid that I should drink this, he exclaimed. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the exploits of the three. Actually, one place tells us that David actually poured the water out as an offering to God. And now you're sitting there going, it seems like, they, it seems like from my Western mind that he dishonored them, that he disrespected their sacrifice. But actually, the opposite happened. David honored the sacrifice of his men by giving the gift to God, basically declaring himself unworthy of their sacrifice, that their sacrifice was so great that only God was worthy of it. That's what he was declaring. What do we learn from this? How does this apply to our wilderness? What do we learn? Well, in your notes, I have the word in the wilderness we learn to love, but I want to change the word. I want to change the word love to a more masculine word, a word that is love, but it it means love to a man specifically, and it's the word honor. Honor. You see, David, in, in this moment, he teaches us a different kind of love. He teaches us a love that is the love that is, it isn't hugs and, and handshakes and laughs and, and, and giggles. It is battle-hardened, bloody men respecting each other and calling out of each other honor and a higher sacrifice. And so we learn to honor in our wilderness This is a very biblical thing. What does it mean to honor? Well, just like hope means to see God's future in a situation, honor means to see God's plan on a person's life or God's intent in another person. It means that we stop being the fact callers. Well, that guy's a failure. That guy's family's a wreck. That guy's financially ruined. Yada, 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 calling out the facts. That's not helping anybody. Especially if we make it a judgment and we isolate and wall that person off and we basically say, you get that fixed and we can be friends. That's not how the kingdom works. That's judgment. Honor is this. Honor is, hey, there's a higher path, dude. That's what repentance is about, thinking higher, right? There's a higher path. I'm weak, you're weak. I got failures, you got failures. If we honor each other, that means I don't let you take the low road, and you don't let me take the low road. We arm and arm, and together we take the higher path. That is honor. We can't allow each other as men and brothers in this battle for this world and our children and our families. We can't allow each other to take the soft, easy road. We have to stand together. (laughs) 
This is a biblical idea. Philippians 2.25, Paul says this, Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. Hebrews 10.24, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let's not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is, is drawing near. This, this idea of learning to honor one another, to stand for one another, to give each other courage, to call each other up, this is critical. It moves you out of that place of that cowboy that I'm in this by myself. I'm building my own kingdom into the place where I'm fighting in a war with a band of brothers. And we stand with each other. We strengthen each other. And as you see, Jesus envisioned for the church a relationship between us that filled us all with hope and courage, not fear and shame. We should never... We should never take the devil's side against a brother. Do you hear me? That should never happen. We should always stand together and call each other up. Does that mean we don't call each other out? No, sometimes there are moments that we have to step into a brother's life and say, Hey, man, this isn't going well. I'm with you. I will help you. I'm not here to expose you. I'm here to help you carry this. Does that make sense? That's what brotherhood looks like. I'm here to help you carry this. I'm not here to just make you feel stupid or ashamed or afraid. We start calling out honoring each other. I wonder what would happen. Mind if I dream a little? What if when we came together as the body in Christ, whether it's in this large group on Sunday or it's a small group during the week, or it's 180 out, the men's group. It's meeting next Saturday or Saturday after? 29th? 29th. Free plug, 180 out. What if we went to those things and we had a mission? And here's the mission. I'm going to give every brother I can courage and honor today. I'm going to share it. What if we came together on Sundays? Not just men, men and women. What if we came together to honor and encourage and give each other courage. That's what encouragement is. You know that, right? It's, it's out of my well. Actually, it's out of Christ's well of courage. I give you courage. You may be down right now, but I see a victory coming for you. I mean, isn't that always true? I mean, if Christ is in you, there's always a victory coming, right? There's, you're like, I'm in the middle of impossible circumstances right now. That's awesome because we serve a God who the impossible is nothing. And what if we could speak that into each other's lives? I mean, speak it. Use words. I mean, the coronavirus thing, we're kind of afraid to touch each other, right? <laughs> get over it, man. Get your shots. Going to get hugged around here. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Just walk like that, and we won't hug you. We'll know. We'll know that you're afraid. Just kidding. So, men, as your pastor as a friend, as a father, a grandfather, although I'm just now getting used to saying that. Five grandkids, just now getting used to saying that. <clears throat> we got to move from that place where I'm in this alone 
and I'm taking care of me, and it's about all I can get done, me and mine, to a place where I'm helping you, and you're helping me, and we're working together, and we have hope for each other. We need to get rid of the ideas of shame and guilt and move into the ideas of honor and hope. We do that, we'll rise up together. We do that, we'll help each other raise sons and daughters for the glory of God. We'll, we'll together keep our children and wives safe from the evil influences and assaults of the world in which we live. So last week I told you the warrior has to learn, I mean, the cowboy has to learn how to manage himself and rule himself. And so I want you to remember this, so I'll put it on the slide. The warrior has to learn to lead others with faithfulness, hope, and courage. We learn faithfulness when we learn to follow Jesus like he followed his father. We learn hope when we learn to have hope for, any, for everyone else. When we learn to have hope for others. And we learn courage when we learn to love, encourage, and honor those that God loves and for whom he gave Jesus Christ. So men, I call you into the warrior stage. Maybe you're in that cowboy stage right now. You need some warriors around you. Many of you men, you still have children at home, and I think that you're moving from warrior to king, which we'll talk about next week. Just remember, you need other men around you. And then we'll talk about sage in a few weeks. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have Michael come. Oh, you want me to do it? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion. So listen to me pray. Let's bow our heads. You can stay seated for a sec. Father, we come together as a body in Christ. It's like an army. There's a lot of men in this room, too. A lot of warriors, men and women warriors. I do speak to the men in this re- as I pray, asking you to call us up, asking you to show us how to stand arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder, to fight in the war together. And Lord, here we come to this communion table. This communion table. It's about blood and bread. Great symbols of what it means to fight in a war. And Lord, we're going to take communion together as a body, all the families together. As we do so, Lord, would you show us and teach us just how, one, amazing it is that you've called us and chosen us and what you've made us. But also, Lord, how costly it was for you to save us. And then, how precious it is what we do now with this great gift. So, Lord, I pray you bless our communion time together. I pray that it compels us, that it lifts us, that it strengthens us. Thank you. In Jesus' name. As we take communion.